Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings fellow time travellers, always great to have you with me as we journey through history together, history and time. Before we start out on today's episode, as always, I need to and want to say a big thanks to all the people who show their support for this series of podcasts by subscribing to my patreon.com site. It's the financial support, the money from the patreon.com site that means that everything else is and always will be free. So thank you. If you're not a member and you'd like to become one, go to patreon.com, look for me by name and sign up. Part of some cash, uh, monthly or annually. It's cheaper if you sign up for the whole year. Uh, and you become part of a family, a community of like-minded, inquiring types. There's weekly questions and answers, podcasts and vodcasts and competitions and connection to other people of like mind. Okay, that's enough of the advert. Time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Rich, powerful and stretching over a vast territory. A glittering empire that lasted for over a thousand years. Economically and militarily, it was the most formidable force in Europe. But a new empire was on the rise and threatening its eastern territories. A brutal battle, decisive defeat and the capture of the emperor swung the pendulum in a new direction. And the battle lines that would last centuries were drawn. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we stood below the mighty city walls of a forgotten kingdom as its history was stolen. Which moment in time are we heading to this week? Hello Paul. Yes, we're leaving Africa behind. Uh, and also departing the incredible city of Great Zimbabwe and heading to Byzantium, which was otherwise known as the Eastern Roman Empire. Of the two empires, it proved to be the most resilient. Uh, It survived the fall of the Western Roman Empire and went on to flourish for another thousand years. We're here to witness a turning point, though, a turning point in its fortunes that will have profound implications for centuries to come and everybody else. We're at the Battle of Manzikert. We're in Manzikert, in the Byzantine Empire. In the the Empire of Byzantium, whatever syntax you prefer. Manzikert matters in the story of the world because it was a climactic battle in some respects in that there had always been the idea that the, the West would never be challenged by the East the the, the Christian West 
in this case, operating out of Constantinople within the Byzantine Empire, that whatever happened, the East would not challenge. It couldn't challenge because it was just inferior. That was the abiding belief that had been there for centuries, longer than anyone could remember. Manziker burst that bubble, extinguished that flame. And that bubble having been burst, it was never reinflated. And that light having been extinguished, it was never rekindled. It was it was the end of a dream in some ways. The Battle of Manzikert was on the 26th of August, 1071, and it was a rout. The Seljuk Turks overwhelmed the Byzantine Christian army, and the Byzantine Christian army ran for it to live to fight another day. The Seljuk Turks were led by a sultan. The Seljuk Turks had sultans. That's It's from them, it's from that people, that, that population, that we get the word sultan. He was Muhammad bin Dawud Chagri, but he was known to the men and to his people as Al-Arslan, which means the heroic lion. You'll hear in Arslan the, the echo of Aslan from you know the C.S. Lewis Narnia books. Arslan was the heroic lion. And... He had driven the the Byzantines, the Christians, from the field. To add insult to injury, the Byzantine emperor, Romanus IV Diogenes, had been taken, he'd been captured. And he was was brought before Alp Arslan, who, it's myth-making, we're always dealing with myth-making, but apparently Alp Arslan said to him, what would you do, Romanus, if the positions were reversed and it was me being brought before you as a prisoner? And Romanus apparently said, I'd probably kill you. Or I might parade you through the streets of Constantinople, or both. And Alp Arslan listened to that and then said, well, my punishment is far heavier than that, because I forgive you and I set you free. And he sent him back to his people. And he was right. (laughs) He was right, because back in Constantinople, uh, Romanus was, some little while later, was deposed by a coup a palace coup and blinded he had his eyes plucked out and he was exiled to die so you know it would probably been kinder if Alp Arslan had just done for him there and then but so there you go his, his premonition was right he was giving him a, a far heavier punishment by, by letting him live and sending him away Manziker in comparison to Battles of the Day it, it wasn't really that heavy a loss they were defeated, but it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't a butcher's slab of an event. Um, and in fact, the the senior commanders made it off the field. The Christians all made it off the field, thereby later to conspire against the emperor. You know, so it, it it hadn't been disastrous in that respect. It was the principle of the thing. You remember we talked about Charles the Simple having the Vikings round and the the Vikings converting to Christianity, and one of them. Uh, rather than bending down or kneeling down and kissing Charles's foot, he kind of got him by the leg, got him by the ankle and lifted his foot up. And that made Charles the Simple fall over. He upended him. Well, th- this was what happened at Manzikert. The The old idea of the dominance of the West over the East was just upended, fell flat on its back or flat on its face or whatever. You know, so this was the this was the significance of it. So was was Byzantium also called the Eastern Roman Empire? Yeah, I mean, by that at that time, by the, at the time of the Battle of Manzikert, there was the Western Roman Empire, and there was an Eastern Roman Empire, 
Rome had fallen long ago. You know, Rome, the Roman Empire in the West was was long gone. But at, at the time of Manzica and and afterwards, you know, it didn't it didn't do away with the with the Byzantine Empire not at all. It just burst the bubble of Byzantine superiority over all comers. In many ways, that was a more lethal wound, and and it began what was effectively a bleeding out. That wound having been inflicted at Manzikert, it, it didn't kill it there and then, but it was it was they started to bleed at that point, and the and the bleeding you might say never stopped until eventually you know Constantinople and that empire falls in 1453. So they've still got some some distance to run, but the wound is there. You know they've, they've been they've, their wrists are slashed if you like, and it's just a matter of how long it takes for them to you know to bleed out. So so it, it's a really powerful empire at that point there. Well, they're in. They're not. Well, they're still in. They're still in control. But they're. They're. It's like a sandcastle, and the tide's coming in. The the sandcastle is still there. Uh, it's still got a lot of its shape, but the 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 vast expanse of sand that had been around it, it's not there anymore. The the tide is encroaching. Others are moving in, so it's getting smaller. I mean, make no mistake, the Byzantine, the empire in the east had been hu- had been hugely significant, was still important. You know, from its seat at Constantinople, surrounded by the walls of Theodosius, impregnable. You know, the the you know Muslim hordes had th- had thrown themselves against it and had broken themselves against the rock of the wall of Theodosius, for example. Um, and it, it held sway over a vast territory, you know, from from its establishment in the fourth century, it, it, for a thousand years. It, it, did stand undefeated, but it, it was always, you know, it was in a long, slow decline for a long, long time. The quality of its emperors waxed and waned, you know, and it was continually bedeviled by bad leadership. But the point was, the, the world was in flux, the world's in movement all around it, and, and it, it's very hard to maintain a territory like that. You know, these, these enormous expanses, it happens to them all. You know, the Soviet Union, you know, the Soviet Union held an enormous territory and then, you know, in 1989 when the wall came down it just, it all just fell away from it you know, and that that is in part the aftershocks of all that are still playing out with what's happening in Ukraine you know, that's an, that's an empire dying falling away, being diminished and, and so Byzantium the, the Byzantine Empire also was in a long, slow decline and it suffered death by a thousand cuts but a really significant cut was inflicted at Manzikert in, in 1071. It really mattered what happened there. But the, the empire didn't fall until 1453. That's how slow it was. But there was a change of consciousness in 1071. It, it showed the, the wider world, oh, look, they're not invincible. Apart from anything else, if you get them on a battlefield and handle them the right way, you can take them. And that that mattered because that took away some of the self belief of Byzantium, and it also emboldened there would be foes then and in the future. Well, you, you know, we can we can get at them, you know, in the same way that the Spartans had held sway on the Greek mainland as being indomitable. You know, you couldn't stand against the Spartans until you could. <laughs> you know, the the Thebans, you know, d- defeated them finally. And that was it. It only had to happen once. And so this is what happens at Manzika. It shows the world that they're, that they're not all that. This is the start of the second millennium AD, 1000 AD onwards. By this point, the Western world, our world, our part of the world, making its presence felt in the old world from that 
at that, by that time. You know, because from the story of the world starting 5,000 years ago, we hadn't mattered much. Things were happening here, but they weren't affecting the old world that, that grew out of uh, Mesopotamia, Babylonia, uh, the, the Persians, uh, Egypt, all of that ancient world was not really troubled much by what was happening here in the West. But after 1000 AD, not that the date mattered, it's just that's when it began to be the case. The Western world was making its presence felt. The West had been transformed by Christianity. But again, that process took centuries. Christianity thrived under Rome and then almost died when Rome in the West fell over, fell on its face. You know, Christianity was, was held up by the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire fell, then, you know, Christianity started to diminish and it clung on on the Atlantic facade in the west of Scotland and, you know, in the west of Ireland. It hung on there and then was able to come back in. And it was a stubborn plant, Christianity, and it did change Europe forever. Charlemagne, 800 AD, made emperor by the Pope in Rome. He reconnected. He was interested in the East. So he, he began that bridge building back in that direction. And, and from the time of Charlemagne, certainly onwards, the, the people of the West were increasingly interested in what was happening in the East. And, and what, did they, what did they encounter? As they turned their face in that direction, as they turned to look at the land of the rising sun, what did they see? Well, there are four civilizations that matter by the start of the second millennium AD, and that's Byzantium, and also China, and India, and Persia. And we've touched on, we've touched on all four already. China takes its name from Qin, Qi Xin Huang. His name, his family name, he was Qin. And it's from him and, and that group that we get China, the name of the place. Now, Qin Shi Huang, uh, who, we've, who we've dealt with, who, you know, he's, he's burial in the extraordinary pyramidal structure that was turned into a hill, uh, you know, the, the lakes of Mercury and all the rest of it. Well, his empire, he united China as one, pulled it together into an entity for the, for the first time, you might say. But it only lasted for 20 years. And then it was replaced by the Han Dynasty. And the Han Dynasty were there from about 206 BC until AD 9, AD 10, there or thereabouts. China goes through a lot of this, where it's held together by a unifying presence, like a strong gravitational force that holds it together, interspersed by periods when the hand on the tiller isn't as strong. The force holding it all together weakens and it, and it fragments into its of independent kingdoms. So after, so there's, there's rule by the Han for those couple of centuries, and then there's a period of unrest, independent kingdoms, and then there's the later Han, establishes itself, another dynasty. And the later Han holds everything together for another 200 years. The people that established the later Han are strong, but their, their descendants, their heirs, aren't so much. And after a couple of hundred years, the Han loses its hold. And then you've got four centuries, 400 years of disunity. And it, and it all falls back into independent kingdoms again. So it fragments. It's not one thing for another four centuries. Then the Sui dynasty from 581 to 618 AD, right? Another period of strong cohesion. And it's under the Sui dynasty that, that people are ordered to start building the Grand Canal, which is this extraordinary construction of the ancient world. It's a canal that links the Yangtze and the Yellow River, right? A man-made construction across hundreds of miles that, that connects these two rivers. 
but the suey didn't last long, not by Chinese standards. And they're replaced by the tang. You don't need to try and keep up with this. It's just, these are the names that come and go. But it's a bit like the Egyptian story that we told. It's like a, a, a thick gato, Egypt. Thick layers of sponge, which are kingdoms and times of, of, of cohesion and solidity, punctuated by thinner layers of cream or jam, where they're controlled by outsiders or there's, or there's disunity or whatever. Well, you've got the same sort of thing happening in China. There's periods of stability interspersed by periods of where it, it fragments again. So after the Sui, who, amongst other things, started the, the Grand Canal, they're replaced by the Tang Dynasty. And the Tang Dynasty, are, they're interesting for many reasons, but, but their, their capital is at Chang'an in the Shaanxi province in central China, where the Silk Road begins or ends, depending on whether you're starting out heading west or you're coming in heading east. But the Silk Road has its terminus there. And Chang'an, the name of the city, means perpetual peace. And it got that reputation because it was very cosmopolitan. There were travellers and merchants and people from all over, from all the surrounding areas. You'd meet people there from Arabia, people from Central Asia, people from Persia. Chang'an was tolerant of religion, so Muslims were able to practice there. Nestorian Christians, which is a, a, a sect of Christianity. Zoroastrians, they were all there. It was all peace and love and everything was great in Chang'an. And the Tang, that was a high watermark. It was one of those golden periods. And it lasted until 907 AD. And then it, it fell apart. Later, subsequently, the Tang were replaced by the later Liang dynasty. So there's a period after the Tang and before the later Liang of a lack of cohesion. It, it, it falls into uncertainty again. Now, so, and that's, that's in the 10th century AD, but rewind a bit and let's, let's consider the people that are, that are around there, other, other groups, other, other populations. Now, a name that will become important is that of the Turks. Uh, they were a Central Asian people Way back, back in the sixth or seventh centuries, they had been uh, there had been an empire, a Turkish empire, strong leadership. They held themselves together as a as an entity, understanding itself as a as as as, as one thing. But then there was a period of expansion by Arabs out of the Arabian Peninsula that upset them in the second half of the seventh century. But when the Tang Dynasty falls in 907, Central Asia shrugs like a bull, you know, shrugging its flanks and scattering flies. Everything moves. Everything moves all at once. And amongst those who went on the move in that 10th century were the Oguz Turks. They were pagans by tradition, but amongst their numbers, some, including the Seljuks, who are a clan within the Oguz Turks, they had already encountered Islam in the form of Arabian Muslims that they met, they met in territory known as Transoxiana. And they converted, they were so impressed by Islam that they converted to that religion and so impressed were they by Islam that they, they began translating Persian and Arabic books into their own tongue. You know, they, they took it very seriously. And it was Muslim Seljuks who crossed the Oxus River from, well, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan into lands that had been Byzantine and Christian. Okay, so... It is complicated, but just think there's been cohesion in China provided by the Tang. That collapses, there's uncertainty, and that uncertainty just ripples, ripples far and wide, and it moves people around. 
people start to move. You know, if you picture, I don't know, if you put Atlas, the giant, holding up planet Earth on his shoulders, it's like he stumbles and, sh- and everything just gets jolted and, and everyone just starts to move. It's one of those moments that just unsettles everybody. And so the, the Muslim Seljuk Turks, you know, they've been, they're being unified by a religion. You know, they've got a real sense of themselves and they begin to expand and they cross the river from Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and they go into lands. They're not moving into China. It, on the, 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 the ripples are pushing people in all sorts of directions. They cross into Byzantium. They cross into lands that had previously been Christian. They push into Palestine, and they push into Syria, and they push into Asia Minor. And it's in Asia Minor that they arrive at Manzikert and the battle with Byzantine forces there. So you don't need to you don't need to keep track of the names and bringing China into it might sound confusing, but it's just to give a sense of the way in which everyone's interconnected. As one empire is strong, it affects all the territories on its fringes. When that strong cohesive force fails, the thing becomes looser. You know that which had been it's like ice, it's like a glacier. As it starts to melt, everything starts to move. And every toppling domino knocks somebody else and everyone starts to move. So it was uncertainty, for example, coming out of the collapse of the Tang Dynasty in China that just had reverberations for thousands of miles. And weakness causes some people to move and that that leaves other people behind or the people that move forward, they bump into other people and they move. Either they fight back and they resist or they're displaced. It's just that idea of flux. And in that flux, these Seljuk Turks who had already encountered Islam, they were getting a real sense of themselves from that faith. And they were expanding and they were moving. And they moved in all sorts of directions. So they come out of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And they ultimately end up in bumping into the lands of the Byzantine Empire. And it all comes to a head at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. You know, it's just to give that idea of all the... You see these pictures of people set up huge domino, uh, huge complicated setups, and they push one, and then you know unimaginable things start to happen. Well, that's what's happening. And then, poof, one of the big powerful displays of the toppling dominoes is what happens at Manzikert. The Seljuks' paramount leader was a sultan. That's That was their word. That was the name that they used. And the sultanate that they established, based at Manzikert... They called it Rum, because that being their version, that that being their attempt at pronouncing Rome, because they saw themselves as whatever Rome meant to them. I mean, Rome, Rome's in Italy, but Rome had been, or Rum had been transplanted to Constantinople. Constantinople was the Rome of the East. And when the Seljuk Turks established themselves, they had heard that word. Rum meant power, meant the peak of the ziggurat, you know, the, the, the summit of the mountain. And because they saw themselves as the natural successors, the natural heirs to greatness, they called their sultanate the Sultanate of Rum. And so if the theme of this is about reverberations and dominoes toppling and unintended consequences and everything being connected to everything else, Manzikert rang out like a pistol shot that was heard around the world because the Western world that also had that sense of itself, born of centuries of Christianity, looked at what was happening out East. 
they looked at what the Seljuk Turks had done to Christians of the Byzantine Empire and hackles went up. Christian hackles went up in the West and inspired in that moment was the desire to put Christ back on his throne, to, to put Christianity back on top, on top of Islam. And so the battle at Manzikert did nothing less than begin to trigger what we know as the Crusades. Barefoot and fasting, a blizzard raging all around him, for three days and three nights wearing only a penitent's hair shirt, the Emperor stands outside the castle gates, a moment of high drama in the bitter power struggle between church and state, two ruthlessly stubborn men at each other's throats. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, my YouTube channel called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs>